Welcome everybody. I'm Johnny Jacobs, a member of the ICAST Council, and for those less familiar, that's effectively our non-exec board. And I've had the huge privilege of co-leading our mental fitness and business strategy. Now, outside of ICAST, I have the pleasure to serve as a finance director at the global coffee company Starbucks and sit on various boards, including the Mental Health Foundation. Now, this mental health discussion we're having today is part of the wider strategy to elevate the conversation, to break stigmas and support our communities. So for me, this conversation means a lot. And it's a real privilege to host this alongside three wonderful panelists. And today, we're joined by Samantha Frost, Javid Bobat and Leanne Stewart. Thanks, Johnny. Hi, I'm Samantha Frost. Um, I'm the wellbeing lead on a number of boards, including ICAS. Uh, I also sit on the ICAS Council, um, and I'm a mental health first aider for adults and young people. I'm very much looking forward to this. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Jai Boba. I'm the founder of Five, which is a, an ethical recruitment brand that combines recruitment and mental health. But I've also set up a nonprofit called F Mental Health, which is there to provide mental health and wellbeing support to finance teams across practice and industry, as well as working with the institutes, including now ICAS, ICAW, Chartered Institute of Taxation, etc., around the topic of mental health and wellbeing. Hi, thanks, Johnny. Leanne Stewart here. So I am a CA who, after 15 years in finance leadership roles, left to start my own business, where I go into um, businesses and work with teams to teach them breath and mindfulness tools, equipping them with techniques and practices that they can use throughout their day to manage their mental health. Thank you, Leanne, Javadan, Samantha. So to kick us off, I thought I would just provide a bit of context. Picture a teenage boy, a 13 year old, sat in a house in the west of Scotland, a working class family, sat in his bedroom, suffering from extreme loneliness, with no one to talk to. No one was asking if he was okay. And that boy had no family to talk to or to fall back on, and wasn't sure how to get himself out of this predicament. Well, that boy was me um, and I had no idea what to do with my life. I recall knowing a man who was an accountant who had a house and had security and with little else in my life but that image of safety of that accountant I fought hard to lift myself out and become a CA with ICAS and in some way becoming a CA gave me purpose and you might even say becoming a CA saved my life. So I can't describe to you how empowering it is that we're talking about mental health today. And we're doing so just before Mental Health Awareness Week, which takes place in the UK from the 15th of May. And for those less familiar, Mental Health Awareness Week is hosted by the Mental Health Foundation, which I'm privileged to be a trustee of. Now, each year, Mental Health Awareness Week raises the topic up the national discourse. Now, Mental Health Awareness Week is an ideal time for us to talk about our mental health, to tackle the stigma and to find out how we can create a society that prevents mental health problems. But this year is focused on anxiety. And what I appreciate about the theme of anxiety is it's a normal emotion for all of us to have. And we can all relate to it in some way. And we'll no doubt hear from 
Javed, Samantha and Leanne share what it means to them. Now, lots of things can lead to feelings of anxiety. And for this ICAST conversation today, clearly things like exam pressure, starting a new job are particularly relevant. Now, whilst I've just dived into what's in front of us right now with Mental Health Awareness Week, this is an all year round conversation. It's a lifetime conversation. So before I hand over to our panelists, I'll just take a moment to share what is ICAST doing in that conversation and how do we find ourselves here today and the great work that the team in ICAST has been doing to propagate the mental health or the mental fitness agenda. Now, I recall having conversations with various members of the ICAST leadership team about five years ago, and we discussed what role ICAST could play here. And at the time, I was only really finding my own voice and starting to raise us up the strategic board agenda. But in those conversations, I found others at ICAST who also had a passion for this. And in 2019, we architected the, the mental fitness plan and we set an ambitious goal to make a long-term commitment to lead the way in our approach to mental fitness by supporting and championing mental health for colleagues, students, members. And we set about to do a few things. Firstly, to work towards ICAST being a bit of a beacon for mental fitness. And we would do this by removing uh, the mental health stigma and position ICAST as an organization who wanted to tackle the challenges, right? Who wanted to break the stigmas. And we also wanted to give and provide capability for our members and students on the subject. So we formed a group of ambassadors as a program team. There was a really passionate lead. And now we have an incredibly passionate lead in Laura Butcher, who is, who is also helping to lead and for us to take tangible steps to make a positive difference. And now we find ourselves in 2023 and we've got a plan this year to continue to educate, to raise awareness and to support students and members and ICAST staff and communities. And that includes things like the new Evolve Wellbeing Helpline, a counselling service, plus lots of other resources. So today's podcast on anxiety is part of all of that. So with that in mind, why don't we kick off with you, Javid, and maybe give the audience a perspective on what does anxiety mean to you? To me, sadly, I come with lived experience of sort of anxiety, as you know, I'm sure the statistics say that many of us do. So I've not known a life without anxiety. So since sort of growing up as a young adult and moving away from anxiety being a natural response, almost I describe it as almost that sort of unwelcome friend and uh, an unwelcome companion that it's always there by my side almost feel like it's been a heavy blanket that's been all consuming through my adult life and I think what doesn't help is if you're what I categorize myself as a high functioning anxiety that it can then also display itself in in different ways from a workplace point of view and ultimately what you may see or what people have seen in the workplace when it comes to high function anxiety is different behind the scenes but inside there's a lot of emotional and physical sort of pain that's going on to to try and achieve what you are doing from a from a workplace and life. I guess more recently, just looking at my experience of anxiety, so I got diagnosed with ADHD last August, and that came as a bit of a shock to me, and it take several months for me to sort of process that, um, and especially being late diagnosed. I was 43 when I was diagnosed, and what I've started to look at more recently is the relationship between ADHD or neurodiversity and anxiety and mental health as a whole. And I found it a really sort of interesting eye opener for me and almost looking at some of the neurodivergent sort of uh, symptoms and behaviors that present themselves, 
especially if you bear in mind that there's so many that 50% of people who are diagnosed with a neurodiverse condition have an anxiety or a comorbid mental health condition alongside. And, and the more I started looking into it, the more I've begun to realise, and I'm still going to explore further, that a lot of the sort of neurodivergent traits are actually inducing anxiety. So that relationship between anxiety and neurodiversity is is really real. So just going through some of the symptoms um, and some of them overlap as well. So all or nothing thinking, leaving things last minute, um, being on time or often being late or lack of time awareness, impulsive behaviours, the people pleasing part, perfectionism, poor boundaries, procrastination, sort of losing focus, brain fog, struggle. I think all these neurodiverse conditions are, I'm now realising that they are sort of inducing the anxiety and almost making it worse. So for me, sort of anxiety is now taking a completely different perspective on it now to almost look at, okay, what is it that's inducing, which neurodiversity traits are inducing my anxiety and to work on those and creating better habits around those neurodiversity traits, which can then begin to help reduce anxiety. So still early in my thinking, but I'm really excited about just exploring this further with a view that I can then share those insights, first and foremost, to help me, but also then be in a position to help others. That piece around high-functioning anxiety and how do you live with the emotional, physical pain and still achieve, I think that will really resonate with a lot of the high achievers that, that we'd have with an ICAS and CA members and those listening to this. Perhaps, Leanne, if I could come to you and get your thoughts on what anxiety means to you. Yeah, sure. So I think my personal experience with anxiety is very much in response to a particular stress or a combination of stresses rather than that anxiety disorder piece where it, it gets dissociated and there's no particular thing you can attach it to. It is definitely a freeze state for me. There is that overwhelm, that being stuck in the negative thought cycle, that real disconnection from what's actually going on. And I think it's that piece that then makes it really difficult to figure out what action or what care you can take for yourself to then help relieve the anxiety and get you out of it. Like it's very much feels like treading water. You know, you stay afloat. And you know, a bit of that surface level piece that Javid was just talking to that from the outside, people can't see it, but there is all this stuff going inside. So you stay afloat, but you're getting nowhere. <laughs> and it's that fatigue, it's exhausting to work you know, and have anxiety and be trying to work through it. Thank you, Leanne. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of CAs with very busy jobs will, could feel and probably do feel overwhelmed at times and having this additional neurodiversity or, or, or this neurodiversity and having anxiety can really, really add to that. Um, Samantha, um, what does anxiety mean to you? Thanks, Johnny. Um, I guess I'd start off by saying I feel very fortunate that I don't live with anxiety. Um, I really applaud anyone for sharing their story about it. It takes a lot of guts. Um, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I, I realised that people were increasingly coming into my circle that did live with anxiety, and I didn't understand it. Um, so that really prompted me to get myself trained as a mental health first aider um, and learning around the difference between the normal feelings of anxiety that we all have and the feelings that sometimes we need in order to deliver our best performances, the difference between that and the more systemic, deep-rooted uh, conditions, I guess, that really affect your day-to-day -day life. Um, 
and I, I found it so interesting. I decided to then go back and train as a first uh, mental health first aider for young people. I guess the other aspect for me in terms of what it means is I'm a school governor and the impact that I'm seeing anxiety have on school kids is absolutely heartbreaking because the instances of mental health disorders, no surprise, is rocketing since the pandemic and leading to huge numbers of school avoidance. And when I look at the statistics of kids who are just not able to turn up to school in their young years and in the years approaching GCSE and A-level, when I think about the impact that that's going to have on them going forward and going out into their careers and out into the world, it's it's just terrifying. Um, so as I said, very happy to be part of this sort of conversation and applaud people for speaking out and sharing their stories because it's it's something that's happening across the board and um, and I think you know kids who are dealing with it at school now are going to be our colleagues in the years to come and the best that we can sort of equip workplaces to help them I think I think we'll reap the rewards of that. Thank you Samantha and you're really just casting the net even wider as to anxiety because it's not just our workplace issue this and it's, it's or a, an issue for for adults or for the professionals that are on the call but actually it's our kids and for the next generation coming through and therefore the more that we can all do to understand that from a workplace perspective but more broadly then we'll we'll help society on a much bigger ticket and, and with that in mind perhaps we should shift the conversation into around business and organizations and what are they doing well to support this agenda and what would we like to see done differently and I'm hugely fortunate I've got a good insight into what different organizations are doing um, up and down the land um, we're seeing a real elevation of mental health up the strategic agenda we're seeing more and more organizations leaning into this and supporting their, their colleagues and staff and their communities more broadly Javid to you what would you like to see businesses do more of or what are they doing well at the moment? Something I've noticed is almost a move away from purely centrally coordinated efforts and creating more location or team specific uh, wellbeing groups. So I've been invited into two or three businesses that have created wellbeing committees and groups for finance teams. Now these are very large companies that have got two to 300 plus in finance, but they've gone and looked at what there is from a well-being centrally and created their own sort of well-being steam group for finance. And I find that a really interesting evolution of how well-being needs to evolve within organisations of not just relying on HR and centrally coordinated efforts. And, and obviously, if you're a smaller company and you don't have a, a big finance team, you don't work at a Starbucks or whoever it might be, that actually you can have it location specific or cut it in another way. So an SME can still create that sort of same feel as well so um so that's been quite an interesting observation on my part i think another area that's been particularly interesting is the link between money and mental health and if you look at the increase in just cost of living crisis and everything that's gone on in the last sort of year and how those sort of money worries are fueling mental health and anxiety a lot and what some employers are beginning to do a lot more is around addressing that and whether that's through one-off bonus payments, inflation-linked pay rises, you know, and committing to doing that moving forward. And more general education around financial well-being, because ultimately 
that is a really, really hot topic. And it doesn't look like any sign of it abating. And the link is real between money and mental health. Javid, I'm sure raising financial well-being will really resonate with an awful lot of the audience. And as finance people, we'll all love a number. But sadly, these are not good numbers. One in five people who suffer from mental ill health challenge have financial worries. And of those people who have financial worries, 50% of them suffer from mental ill health challenge. And right now with the cost of living crisis, we know that mental health will be impacted, or mental health will be impacted more and more by financial well-being. And I'm really pleased that we are seeing organizations, I think that's right. I think we are seeing organizations lean into this more and more. Is that something, Leanne, that, that you're seeing? And, and what are you seeing organizations doing well at the moment? Yeah, I think there is. I think what is lovely to see is that broader appreciation that workplaces have a responsibility or a duty of care to support their employees, not just in respect of the stress and anxiety that might be induced through work, but almost that whole person approach of understanding that there are things that are from their wider life that might present and impact when they're you know, during their work hours. And I think that focus on financial well-being is a really big pillar of that. And it's lovely to see. And um, I think the piece that I would like to see done a little differently is using data and metrics, actually measuring how effective the support, the programs, and um, the things that are out there are doing. I think there's a lot of yes, we've ticked a box, we've got an EAP broad scope scheme out there, that's us done. And I think what we find is actually a lot of EAP, for example, is underutilized. It's not necessarily meeting the needs of the teams. So I think there's this person-centered approach piece that can go a little bit deeper. And Javid just referred to it a little bit in seeing that, you know, there's team-specific um, programs and initiatives happening. But I think people or businesses need to understand their people's needs and build the support around that rather than the other way. And that measurement piece is just key. You know, how do you know it's working unless you're tracking it and understanding who's using what and what the outcomes are? And that is definitely one of the big focus areas for businesses right now, isn't it? And there's actually a role here for accountants to play in this because we all love an ROI. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we love understanding the cost and benefit of things. That said, there's a balance to be had because if we focus too much on the return, you don't want to lose the moral argument, but it's really interesting debate, isn't it? About making sure we can really demonstrate the positive impact of the work that, that we're doing. I know Samantha, you've got a, a view on this around the cost of business and returns and how we, we move up the strategic board agenda as well. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's been a real, you know, shift in the narrative. Certainly, I've seen it since the beginning of the pandemic in terms of clients contacting me and saying, you know, what what can I do to help? And, and not, I don't just want to tell them to take a nice long walk at lunchtime and get more sleep. You know, it's I need to do something actually tangible for my teams. Um, and I think just looking at LinkedIn over the past few years, you now log on and it's people sharing their stories like we're doing here. <clears throat> and so I think it's really changed the narrative. Um, but I think there's probably, in terms of what can what can we still do, I think there's probably two areas I'd look at. Um, the first one is I do still think that there is a way to go for businesses to understand the bottom line impact of 
things like anxiety in the workplace. Because if the if the workforce doesn't feel supported in flagging and acknowledging their um, mental health challenges, then the business is going to have an issue with retention and engagement. And that's going to cost them money. It's just it's very simple. Um, I mean, you know, I, I've used it in other webinars. I've used um, Google's project Aristotle, where they looked at what makes a team successful. And they decided that psychological safety was the number one metric in making a team successful. So if you've got someone like Google telling you your team needs to feel safe in order to make money, <laughs> that's, they're making a valid point. Um, and the other thing I look at is probably, I think companies are getting better at looking at the neurodiversity of their workforce. But I wonder how well boards are looking at the neurodiversity of their members. I think boards can have a real role to play in making sure that their composition reflects the challenges of the workforce that they're representing. And I don't think that boards can support what they don't understand. So I'd, I'd always be keen to know what boards are doing in that space to, to, to examine the diversity of the membership. Thanks, Samantha. And on the subject of neurodiversity, Javid, when we spoke a while back, must have been a couple of years ago now, I was really struck by your story and your, your interest in this space. And I'm sure the audience, your story around your own personal story of neurodiversity will have really struck them as well. What's your thoughts around this neurodiversity piece? I think it's still very early stages and I think organisations have got a long way to go to try and make, I guess as a general topic, how can we make workplaces work for everybody? So this isn't just looking at neurodiversity. However, when you look at the numbers, I think it's just over 20% of the workforce are neurodivergent in terms of diagnosed and that number is only set to increase. So I think when you look, combine that with how the world of work has evolved and changed with the pandemic and the post-pandemic world, making the workplaces work for everybody, um, there just needs to be a big review of work environment and conditions. So I'm talking beyond just the workplace well-being benefits, but how can we create more social interaction and connection in this new world of hybrid and remote? But then from, a, from a, bringing in neurodiversity, how there's been a big emphasis on sort of, you know, things going online, meetings and everything, and how can we create better digital habits? So things that I'm beginning to see, but I'd like to see more of, more digital downtime, is the quiet hours and sessions each week within people's calendars, um, blocking out time for focus work, um, you know, half days or days where there's no meetings uh, and, and people's calendars just being absolutely rammed, encouraging time away from their desk. Uh, I think because it's still such an early stage of understanding what neurodiversity is and how it affects people differently. So I'm sort of an inattentive ADHD diagnosed, but there could be someone that sat with me who's also ADHD inattentive, but it's going to affect us differently. So there's never going to be a one size fits all. I think there's going to a lot of education, a lot of awareness, a lot of understanding and trying to, as best as you can, tailor approaches. However, I caveat that with understanding that employers have got and HR have got a really hard time in trying to pull this together, but this isn't a race to get it done ASAP. This will take more than weeks, more than months, just years for us to get that awareness and understanding and then how to adapt that workplace for neurodivergence and 
you know, everybody as a whole, but yeah, lots of figuring out to do, makes it a really interesting time to be in the world of work, but also a bit of a challenging one for, for the people, you know, uh, in business to try and make it work for everybody. Javid, you know, we are really privileged to, to have somebody like you. You think of somebody like with, with your experience, who is a recruiter of finance professionals in this space. I think it's great that we have somebody like you in this space that will bring that neurodiversity when you're looking at, at recruiting people. And when you touched on there about, in fact, you've all touched on around what happens when we have neurodiverse people in the workplace. How do we support them in different ways? And Leanne, I remember um, watching one of the webinars that, that we did a while back and you talking about mindfulness, for example, and the various other tools and techniques that you apply. How how do you support or how have you supported somebody in the workplace who may have a mental health challenge? Yeah, so I have the absolute privilege of going into businesses and teaching breath and mindfulness tools to help people manage the symptoms and experiences of stress, anxiety, overwhelm. And I emphasize the word teach because I'm very passionate about creating familiarity and comfort with the tools and practices that I work with so that people can use them whenever they need them right it, you'll have a lovely time if you come to one of my sessions you know go away feeling nice and relaxed and you know that sense of ease but what I really want is when I'm not there when you're in that moment and you feel the tension rising in your body your heart rate rising that you can do something about it um, and there is something, you know, the tools that I teach are simple, you know, primarily we're using our breath and our senses of awareness. So we can use it anytime that we want, wherever we are. Um, and it really is just a few minutes, sometimes even less than a minute can help you to shift out of that fight, flight or freeze state, which is our sympathetic nervous system, which is where we will typically be when we're feeling stress, anxiety, etc into the parasympathetic, that rest and digest space. And I think there's something really special and powerful about teaching these tools and then put people learning these tools in the workplace. It kind of reinforces that intention to normalize the discussion around mental health awareness, but also almost creating that safe space to use them. So that, you know, if we've all been in a session together and you've been learning these tools, if you look across the person next to you and they have their eyes closed, they're doing something, you know, they're breathing in a particular way, you understand that and you support that. And there's, you know, so there's something lovely about bringing this into the workplace and not just equipping individuals with the tools and techniques themselves, but creating that broader acceptance and awareness support piece. And Samantha, I know you, as part of, part of your role, you also have a bit of mentoring as well. How have you supported people with anxiety? Yeah, so I'm a, a mentor for ICAS and also for my old university. Um, and recently I was having a conversation with one of my mentees and they were expressing their perceived inability to cope with what they were dealing with at work. Um, and I guess in that instance, it was my role to be a signpost. I'm very clear I'm not a doctor, I'm not a mental health professional. Um, but what helped me was the training, the first aid of training that I received, and they gave us an acronym 
to remember so we knew what to do if we found ourselves in a situation with someone who was you know, experiencing some some real challenges um, and I might just quickly run through it in case it's of use for anybody who's listening and finds themselves in a spot where they need to help someone out so the acronym is ALGE A-L-G-E-E and A is approach so in that instance it was me opening up the conversation saying look I'm I'm happy to chat about this it feels like you need to have a conversation about this I'm not feeling uncomfortable I'm happy to talk to you L is listen, and that's listen without judgment. And the number one thing there is don't make it about you. So if you hear someone saying, oh, I'm having this really hard time at work, it's too easy to go, oh, I know how that feels. Last week I had this happening and that's happening and this is how I dealt with it. It's like it's not about you. It's just listen to what they have to say and just keep the focus on them. Um, And G is give support. And then the two E's are encourage encourage them to get professional help have you thought about speaking to your gp and encourage them to get other support so friends and family that sort of thing so i just i found it really i always find it useful to have that in my back pocket if i find myself unexpectedly we got on the call to talk about cvs i didn't expect the conversation to go where it went um but it's it's just useful to have that in the back of your mind if you if you're having a chat with someone you think i don't think they're feeling very well and i need to reach out and ask them do you want to have a chat about this i'm sure the audience will really appreciate that some real tangible tools there to help them in certain situations with that in mind javid perhaps you could share a bit more around you know you supporting somebody with anxiety or what tools would you offer our audience that they can really take away and support them or others when they need it I mean, what's, Samantha, I mean, I'm a mental first aid instructor, so I know that particular model very well, and I know it's proven to to work, to have that as a bit of a framework. I think so I'm in that unique position where I've set up a community interest company, and it's there, and I spend several hours each week providing um, support to workplaces and finance teams, but also to individuals who are struggling. And I guess one of the, a couple of the common themes that always sort of comes out within there that... If someone is wanting and looking to sort of approach you, it takes a heck of a lot of courage for someone to open up. And it's really important within that time to make sure that you give them the time and the attention they need. Because if in any way that you're distracted or not giving them that sort of attention, that it could set them back, you know, even further in in their steps to wanting to get that professional help and support. That's probably one thing that I'd say. I think the other is just be very flexible in the approach of, how that person wants to be supported. So I've done a mixture where logistically where it's been possible, I've met people in person, but we've gone to the park and gone for a walk. The walk and talk is a brilliant way of encouraging someone to open up where you may be sat even in a neutral venue like a coffee shop, but they're just not they're just not opening up as much as perhaps they're comfortable with. So I think getting outdoors and having those conversations outdoors where feasible and practical. I would definitely recommend but obviously that's not always possible but understand that okay how does that person want to be supported and and what samantha said make it about them um if it's not logistically possible can you meet them in person can you meet a neutral venue if it's a work colleague could you go sort of for a coffee or go you know to a neutral venue and, and just give them the time and space to open up in their own time just don't put them under under any pressure to to sort of open up some people will open up more willingly than others and i think a lot of it is just 
you've just got to tailor it to the individual and what their preferences and needs are and just keep following up and as well as the signposting. I think the follow-ups are key. I think you could have a great conversation with someone and then, but just make sure that the follow-ups are there and you're in a position to want to, how much you can sort of support them to make sure they are coming out of the other side. And there's so many people that I've helped where there's been that initial conversation or meeting and then it's great to have seen that progress where they've said to me by message or call, so look, I'm in a much better place now. And, and and seeing that sort of journey, not only is it satisfying for you supporting someone, but also, to, you know, for the individual as well, for them to have been on that journey, you know, know that there is then that sort of hope for recovery. What I always find remarkable when we have these conversations on mental well-being or neurodiversity or broader diversity and inclusion is they're actually quite straightforward things. It's listening, it's being there for somebody, it's showing that human care and kindness and respect. Leanne, on the subject of support, you touched on mindfulness, for example. What other top tips might you give the audience on how they can support their mental well-being? Yeah, so I think there's probably two things I would share. So, you know, when we're caught in that um, spiral, that stress, anxiety response there is a real disconnection right with what's actually going on around us with our physical body it's all mind based so I think one really lovely mindfulness tool that's super simple is the five things so taking a moment see naming noticing five things you can see in your immediate environment four things that you can touch so touching all things around you connecting with that um sense um noting three things you can hear two things you can smell and one thing you can taste and it it's very simple but what it's doing is it's taking you out helping to kind of um break the loop of the thought spiral if you like and connecting you physically with your environment grinding you so that you can actually take a breath, take a moment, and maybe respond rather than reacting um, with what's going on around you. So a really nice little thing to do. The other thing is, so breath is an all-powerful tool to help us support ourselves, um, particularly with respect to our mental health. And there's loads of fancy things I could share, but I think the most basic and easiest thing that you can do is increase the length of your exhale in relation to your inhale. If you can double it, that's brilliant. So the inhale is associated with the the sympathetic, so the stress response, and the exhale is tapping into the parasympathetic, so that calming, more easeful state. So if you can make your exhale longer, you will send a message from the body to the brain to say, it's okay, I'm safe, I can be calm, and that will then loop back round. So double the length of your exhale in relation to your inhale. Um, Leanne, if I could just jump in quickly, just to add, I loved what you said about the five, four, three, two, one, and I just wanted to say, I've seen schools where they've added a little card to the pupils' lanyards, and it has those little five techniques. And on the other side, it says this feeling will pass, and they just have it there so that the pupils have got something to visibly just look at and read through when they find themselves in those moments. So I think if what you're what you're saying, I think if in offices you could have that up somewhere you know just something visual for people to lock into and just to know the way I'm feeling right now will pass and here's what I can do about it I thought that was great and are there any other tips that we could offer managers specifically 
Perhaps, Javid. One of the things I mentioned earlier about moving away from centrally coordinated efforts of HR and not say that they're not doing a great job, I just think it's unfair putting all the demands and expectations of the whole organisation and every single team on one function. And I guess within there is that sort of education and empowerment for line managers. And I think to incorporate sort of understanding mental health and well-being more and adding it to their toolkit, I think there should be more training for line managers for mental health and well-being. And now you bring in more the the importance and the benefits of diversity inclusion and neurodiversity within there as well so i think i'd definitely do that and i think it's probably easier if someone's had lived experience to be more empathetic and be more in tune as a line manager i think there's as, as big of emphasis of the ones with no lived experience trying to either nurture them or encourage them to show an interest or to try and sort of really sort of push that and you don't want to mandate it but it has to become a part of someone's toolkit where I've heard it over the years and in recent years where I say to a line manager in finance, oh, you know, what, what do you do for the well-being of your team and then health, et cetera? And they just, the answer is, well, that's HR's job. And that mindset shift needs to change. And it can only come from adding that to someone's toolkit and know that if you're accountable for your team, then the mental health and well-being of, of their, you know, of your team and, and learning what makes them tick and how to encourage and nurture and how to support them when things are going tough all these things should be added to the toolkit. Thanks, Javis. And that's given a really good insight into what managers can do. We've talked about what we can do for ourselves. But what is the role of ICAS in all of this? Like perhaps, Samantha, you'll give a really good insight into this, particularly given the role you sit on council, the members board, etc. So I think the, the main thing is we need to, ICAS needs to be that signpost. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of support already in place through ICAS, we've got the 24-7 helpline, there's this, the wellbeing hub, there's the mentoring scheme, which as we've talked about, you know, you can help people in a one-on-one um, situation there. But I think it's it's about from the most senior levels down, sharing personal experiences. Because the more we can do that, the more we can demonstrate that living with a mental health challenge is not a barrier to progressing well in your career and speaking out about it is not going to negatively impact your career. That's going to be very meaningful. Um, And personally, as a a mentor, I just want to see us reaching out to these students who are going through their exams and the newly qualified. It's a little while ago now, but I remember very clearly just the agony of trying to qualify as a CA. And we have students some on their own doing their ICAS qualifications. I was lucky I trained with Big Four. So there was a whole group of us who went off to college. But I have mentees who are on their own doing it, and I can't imagine how stressful that must be. So I would just really want to see ICAS wrapping wrapping their arms around around these students, getting them through their exams, and then saying, right, well, your exams are done, but the rest of your journey with ICAS is starting from now, and we're going to be that signpost for you as you move forward. Well, thank you very much everybody who's taken the time to listen to this. And as I said at the start, we're creating a movement and we will progress this agenda by all of us leaning into it. And the fact you're listening to this today and you're contributing to, contributing to this will make a huge difference. So thank you, everybody. And please do join and tune in for the next ICAST podcast. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>